The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hi, I'm your host, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thank you for being with me. Today, I'm welcoming Marilyn Ababio. Marilyn is a skilled administrator with over 25 years' experience managing complex systems infrastructure projects. Ms. Ababio's specific expertise has been applied to Alameda County's Healthcare Service Agency's Advanced Health and Hospice Program called Getting the Most Out of Life. She is serving Alameda County by working to integrate county systems to include advanced care planning services and then to ensure equitable access to advanced care planning and hospice services. A graduate of UCLA, Yale University, and Occidental College, Ms. Ababio is a presenter and participant with prestigious organizations such as the National Academies of Science, Transportation Research Board, Stanford University, one SAGE program, Conference of Minority Transportation Officials, and Harvard University's Civil Rights Project on Issues of Environmental Justice. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you this afternoon. And I appreciate you being here. I'm I'm so intrigued that there's a program in the very county I live in that I had never heard of getting the most out of life, that is, and that... Um, as I understand it, you're you're really working to remove roadblocks to end of end of life information. Yes, we are, and um, we're doing it on a lot of levels. We're trying to reduce the roadblocks that people encounter in the healthcare system, as well as those roadblocks that might be in people's minds about uh, advanced care planning. And by advanced care planning, I mean healthcare planning at a point in life when um, you may be managing a chronic disease or facing a serious illness or be facing the end of life. And do you educate both uh, patients and the medical community? We do. Um, we, I have been working um, since the inception of the program in 2009 when um, Healthcare Services Agency Director Alex Briscoe um, contracted me to come to work and establish a program that would increase the investment that Alameda County was making on um, health for people who are aging and, again, managing a chronic disease or facing a serious illness. And so um, one of the first things I did was to convene a coalition of hospice providers, and they have really been, as you say, the 
the wind beneath our wings, and they have provided a lot of information and training modules and supported the outreach programs that we've conducted so that we can impact both the public as well as the service providers. And do you have a particular, uh, you know, I know that there is a uh, uh, healthcare system of clinics and um, hospital referrals and all for lower income um, residents in our, uh, you know, in our community where you and I live. Um, do you have a particular way that you that you invite people into getting this information? Is it through the healthcare system itself, or is it is it uh, to the side of that? Well, it is directly um, with in conjunction with the healthcare system. Um, I participate at Highland Hospital with um, Dr. Kara Friedman, and she is the head of the end of life committee there. And um, since the time we've started working together, she has increased the understanding and information within the Highland Hospital staff and has increased her staff by having now a palliative care team. And they're making many more hospice referrals and disseminating information in the hospital. In terms of the healthcare clinics that the healthcare services agency is directly uh, responsible for, um, we provide training to clinic staff and we encourage that staff to have conversation with patients appropriately about um, advanced care planning and make referrals um, to hospice or other support groups that would help people who are facing end of life. So we do try to interact as often as possible and make sure that the entire county, the network of employees, the public health department, the behavioral health department, that the social services agency, that they all understand that we are here to serve them and to serve the people that they serve. I, I think that's, I, I'm sure there's got, there's got to be someone doing that elsewhere, but I think it's pretty revolutionary, the idea that, because there's uh, usually such a disconnect between uh, end-of-life points of view and the medical system, which is very much geared towards uh, living, you know, how can I keep your body alive kinds of pr- approaches. Uh, so are you finding that the medical professionals you're working with are able to integrate that, that sometimes that's no longer uh, the priority? Well, I think they're catching on from the um, foundation of there is no cure for death. And so the point that they need to begin to um, enter act, I think, is the point at which a person has a terminal diagnosis, and I think that the public is becoming more aware that that very fact that the medical system does not want to stop treatment um, until, until, you know, the body is wasted, actually, um, and dying, that we um, are asking the public to consider their own death and to consider what they want for themselves and to be able to communicate their wishes and document those wishes on forms like an advanced directive or a post form so that the medical community knows when to stop, understands what interventions the patient would like, what interventions the patient would avoid 
what the patient values, what's worth living for, what's not worth living for, to try to make this more patient-centered. It's such a sensitive issue sometimes, and of course, um, you know, I'm so aware just uh, through the news, if nothing else, of people being very concerned you know that when when affordable care came in people were concerned about death panels and uh, you know that somehow the medical c- profession was going to encourage people to, to give up or something um but that's never been my experience of the healthcare system uh, you know <laughs> that's so true <laughs> you know it's it's always been so geared to living at any cost but how do you deal with that since you do try to serve um, the, the uh, most vulnerable, maybe we could say? Mm-hmm. Do you ever run into a concern about uh, making sure that people do get to try everything they want to try regardless of income levels? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate that Sarah Palin's misunderstanding caused, caused such a, a rift. Um, but I think that the, 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 the power of the individual and the impact of the individual exercising his or her wishes um, within the medical community, I think, is greater. And I think we're turning the curve from that misunderstanding so that people are once again talking about honoring and respected, respecting the wishes of the patient. Now, some patients, as you indicated, want everything done for as long as possible, and that is fine and truly consistent with what the healthcare industry wants to do. And I think that the Affordable Care Act serves to make sure that that can happen. Um, hospitals are no longer um, incentivized to, to uh, keep a patient coming back for the same illness, they're more incentivized to seek cure or to seek some kind of mitigation or allow the patient to live with whatever um, disease has taken them from good health so that we are seeing more intervention at home. Um, community-based palliative care is an example. Um, hospice is another example So people, I think, are broadening their ideas about where care can come from. A few months ago, I interviewed someone you may know, Jessica uh, Nudick-Zitter. She works at Highland as well, and she's a physician. And um, she brought up something that I think is really interesting in terms of the fact that the physician who... uh, who meets the patient in a critical situation actually needs to be trained to bring the subject up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about kind of informed patients or who are ready to say what it is they want. And hopefully there will be more and more of those. Um, but I, I it expanded my thinking to imagine that there could be physicians who would say, you know, let's really look at what's happening here. Um, is that hard to train physicians to do, well, you know, to, to actually bring up the death word, <laughs> 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 on of another way to put it? 
Right. Um, there's a great film called Consider the Conversation that addresses mm. that. And then there is Consider the Conversation 2 that is geared specifically for physicians. I think, uh, I think we recognize that physicians need to be the um, carrier of sometimes bad news. And um, just how to deal with that is a matter that should be um, addressed in medical school. And if not, then as part of the um, physician training uh, postgraduate. Um, the, all, all of the communities that I work with that are invested in advanced care planning know that it is physician training and physician communication that is a critical piece to this. Um, I think that physicians talking to other physicians have the greatest impact, mm. and um, that's beginning to happen more and more because of the public demand, because of books like Katie Butler's Knocking on Heaven's Door and a number of other um, articles and, 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 and periodicals coming from the um, the Journal of Medicine, um, there's so much, the, the body of information around having a conversation is growing and growing and growing exponentially every year. So, you know, sooner or later, I think the physicians will incorporate the conversation in their medical training, but until then, I notice that more and more and more physicians are becoming comfortable and are seeking ways to understand how to talk to people when they have a terminal diagnosis that provides more options and takes more uh, into consideration having to do with that individual's um, wishes for living as best as they can, living Mm -hmm. to the fullest until the end is there, living until they die. Absolutely. And and I think that represents something very lo- large in terms of physicians' viewpoint, uh, not being that that the end of life is a failure on their part. Uh, that that used to be so common as to be practically universal that uh, somehow when the patient died, the physician had failed. Mm. Um, but but it sounds as if you see a change going on where physicians are not uh, looking at it quite that way anymore? Well, because there is no cure for death. It's only rational to look mm-hmm. at it in another way. <laughs> yes. Although, you know, the most rational of us is not completely rational sometimes. Absolutely. That is true. And I think that, that, that you hit on the reason why physicians have difficulty with this conversation. Um, if you look at the general uh, nature of, 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 of someone who's very interested in medicine, numbers, and science, you know, they tend to want to be very, very rational about things, and they, they definitely want to feel that there's a solution. Yes. And, 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 and how do you put um, death into an equation? You know, it seems so finite. Um, yet I, I do believe that the idea of options at end of life will be the solution that they can find. That really they don't have to, those are not decisions they have to make. Mm-hmm. 
uh, they they just have to introduce ideas. Right. Um, I, I recently had an experience myself with with how nuanced that is because uh, my mother died in September and she at uh, at a certain point said I I don't want to do treatment anymore and her physician who was wonderful thought she could still offer her more mm-hmm. and it and it did take a little bit for them to get through I was a witness to the conversation um, there was a discomfort and I don't think it was on on the physician's part a discomfort with the fact of death as much as her her kind of role as a scientific person feeling she could do more mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> she had to kind of give up on that mm-hmm. In the face of my mother, who just decided she was too tired, it was okay not to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a very interesting personal look into the kinds of complications that go on there. And it's uh, a wonderful personal example of, 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 you know, advocacy, one's advocacy for themselves and, and what they want. Um, I mentioned Katie Butler's book, and it had a, a similar scenario with not such a good outcome because in Katie Butler's father's situation, um, he wanted to stop treatment, which would include taking out a pacemaker, mm-hmm. and they, the medical system simply would not allow it. Yes, I did read that book, and, and that, uh, it's literally heartbreaking mm-hmm. uh, what happens when when you don't have a way to be heard. And I also wondered, uh, my mother was a pretty forthright, uh, uh, communicative type of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so once she was clear what she wanted, you know, she was going to say that's what she wanted. She was going to um, head straight into her choice uh, because of her personality. But I wondered what happens for people who are less assertive about their wishes and desires. That conversation could have gone a very different direction had she not been so clear. What about those people who are unconscious at the time? Yes. 70% of people who go into the hospital, who who, um, 70% of people asked to go into the hospital who say that they want to die at home, die into the hospital. 70%, 100% 70%, 100% of the people, um, very few people who have a terminal illness manage to die at home. Hospice really is the choice if you want to die at home. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, hospice and not uh, responding to uh, that process as if it's an emergency, because I know sometimes even in hospice, uh, you know, let's say there's breathing problems or something of that sort, people just automatically call 911, mm-hmm. <laughs> regardless of the fact that they've made that choice. Let's go to a break. And when we come back, I really want to talk about what led you to this work. What in your life, because of course what I've found with this show is there's almost always when people work in in um, dying, death, bereavement, there's almost always a personal connection to that. So let's talk about that. And listeners, in these few minutes, go to my host page at voiceamerica.com, Good Grief page, or my website, 
www.weatheringgrief.com. There's links to all my social media. You can email me from there. You can call the station to get a message to me. And to find Marilyn Ababio, email marilyn.ababio at acgov.org, A-B-A-B-I-O, Ababio, or go to, go to Getting the Most Out of, out of Life Facebook page. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I'm talking today with Marilyn Ababio, who works with her local county health services running a program called Getting the Most Out of Life to help people talk about uh, what they want at the end of their lives and, and how to live fully until until death. So I, I know, as I mentioned before the break, Marilyn, that um, it's almost always something deep personally that leads us to this kind of work certainly true of me true of every guest i've had and i wanted to know uh, i wanted to ask you to share your story how did you come to do this work because it sounds as if you've done some other things in the past i have i have worked <laughs> diligently in areas of business and politics i've worked on capitol hill and and just kept myself busy my whole life. Uh, 
afraid of mess, afraid of blood, afraid of everything that had to do with health care. And um, but yet, on a on a personal spiritual quest to 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 find my place in life, I I always kind of had that in the back of my mind that you know I didn't sing, I didn't dance, and I just wondered, well, what am I here for? Mm. And <laughs> really, and, and <laughs> what a you know what a plaguing and wonderful question, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> what am I here for? Um, and oddly enough, it was. Um, the, my mother, she came to visit me I, and um, asked me if she ever became ill, if I would take care of her. And I had six other siblings, and so I felt like it was kind of special that she asked me, but, you know, I didn't think that it was anything that was close to happening. Mm. And um, it was, I think, about a year later, she called and told me that she had fallen in the grocery store, and I encouraged her to go to the doctor. And um, she did call me back, said that uh, the doctor had some bad news, and she told me that, you know, she had cancer and tumors, and they didn't expect her to live very long. That was um, devastating. She... She was just so special to me, as many of our mothers are. So I flew home to stay with her. And in that process, learned so much about myself and about health care, about my family, about hospice, that it changed me in a way that it is was phenomenal. I mean, it was, um, I don't know what, I don't know what the word is, but it's one of those changes that you can't turn back from. And so with my mother in hospice and me and my sister and intermittently the rest of the family doing care, I came to understand why I was born. And it's kind of a long story and hard to explain how one can be in a place and a space in time and feel so certain that every gift that you were born with or accumulated in life should be directed toward this end. And for me, it was the end of powerlessness for people when facing the healthcare system. Um, it p- particularly became embedded in me when um, my son, oh, I lost one of my children to cancer as well. And in the interaction with the healthcare system for the seven years that I cared for him, I came to realize that there are good doctors and I'll say it, bad doctors, doctors who seem to care and doctors who seem like people are just part of a system that they run through every day, their faces that they see every 15 or 20 minutes and they don't really have a person there. So um, we experienced the care of a couple of really excellent doctors and the best of them could not tell me that I was losing him, that he was dying. They did not tell me. 
they discharged him and sent him home. And had I known that he was dying, I definitely would have called hospice. I definitely would have talked to him differently. I definitely would have done things that could have given him a more peaceful ending. And above all, I would not have taken him to the hospital to be stuck with tubes and to die in intensive care. So having this conversation is one of the most important things in my life right now. And I don't intend to give up until every family in America is prepared. It's, you know, sometimes we find a calling because of what goes right, and sometimes we find a calling because of what goes wrong. You know, it sounds as if um, you're, you're putting your life's work into repairing something that caused you a great deal, I'm sure, of agony. Um, feeling that you would have done things differently, that's a, that's a weight to recover from, for sure. And Do- doing this work, I have talked to a, a large number of people that have experienced the same thing. The California Healthcare Foundation did a study, and I think they talked to thousands of people, and a large percentage, up, upwards from 85 to 90% of those people said that they would want to die at home. And I think I mentioned before, 70% of those people died in a hospital. How do we, how do we stop that train? Mm-hmm. How do we get off at a point where we can conduct our own affairs and, 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 and live our own lives till the end? Sometimes I have a, an odd kind of, of um, this may sound very odd, but an odd kind of gratitude that my wife was, for the many years she was ill, always quote-unquote terminal. In the sense that I think a lot of people kind of deal with cancer or whatever life-threatening thing it is, and they feel they've gotten on top of it, and then the investigation of death and how you want to die and the end of your life kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it never went away for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that does... Uh, it, it, it allowed us to ask more questions. Okay, is this it? <laughs> you know, or... <laughs> I mean, we were able to call the question, but I, I really appreciate what you're sa- saying which is that even though you weren't bringing it up, you could have heard it, and you wish you had heard it from the people that were caring for your son. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Um, And there were plenty of opportunities. I appreciate the fact that every person's case is different, that, that, you know, the... The disease trajectory for everyone is different, but at every point, we we understand when when the diagnosis occurs and the treatment plan is made, and then the the results are not what we expected or not what we wanted. 
and then we make another treatment plan. And if those results are not what we want, then we come to understand that the disease is overwhelming the body, and this is a disease trajectory that is heading toward a terminal diagnosis. Now, my son, you know,'s care, he was a kid, literally, mm. a child. Yeah. And, and nobody wants to say that to a child or to the child's parents. So it was hard for everyone, but it was harder to lose him in that way than to come to grips with something that they were comfortable saying, and that was he had three months to live. So I just felt that, that, that the responsibility should have been with the doctor, you know, after the um, illness progressed such that, you know, there was no more technology that they had that they, 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 they should have told me. And that, I, I guess I would say that means people who are physicians um, need to have a fair amount of what what people call emotional intelligence. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, that those conversations could go better or worse depending on how the physician is able to handle it as a human being to another human being, don't yeah. you think? Yes, I, I absolutely think so. And, and God bless the physicians. I mean, they, they have good intentions. You know, they want to help people and heal people. I, I just think that they have to come to terms with the fact that death is a part of life. And that people are, I think also that people are, in general, more resilient than they seem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that right. there's that there's something relieving about the truth for most people. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. Yeah. Uh, that, that you're saying, uh, you could have heard that. You didn't need for the doctor to say three months. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have liked it, of course, but that you could have heard it. And 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 at the end of three months, you know that's 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 when I really expected to hear it. Um, they did as much as they could. He had he had actually he had a year, but you know every visit during that year, the doctor would remind me this is not going to last. You know, the prophylactic that they came up with to treat his cancer, you know, it was excellent. But he kept telling me it's not going to last because he knew the cancer was going to overwhelm, which it did. So, like you say, we were prepared to hear it. And, and I love what you're saying about resiliency. People are very resilient and the truth, as my mother would say, the truth will set you free. <laughs> free to make choices, to make options, to to plan. And to have a little time to deal with the what I think is such a profound, and I don't mean this in the religious sense, but a profound spiritual process process. Uh, Reviewing your life and and finding what the meaning is and all those things that I do notice 
when people are willing to face death happen naturally. Mm-hmm. Don't you, don't you think so? Oh, I, 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 I started after my son died, I started um, as a hospice volunteer. And that, I did that for 10 years and, and was with many people at end of life. And the spiritual component is, is a beautiful part. It, 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 you know, you hear words, you know, people pray, people find spirit guides. People have all kinds of ceremony and beliefs around their particular end of life, and it's all so beautiful because it brings comfort to people at a time that is, is quite frightening, I, I would say, to you know, not know what's next, but mm. to go there um, with a sense of peace is is a, a highly valued tradition, I think, for everyone. And I think uh, somehow is a, is a natural step in terms, of, because, of course, that's also, in my mind, so deeply connected with relationship, mm. uh, assuming people do have relationships of meaning in their lives, that's the time to savor and talk and, you know, um, be connected if, if uh, the person is well enough. And if you don't know that it's happening, that's much harder to do, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is much harder to do. And, uh, and you know, my, my hat is off to, to caregivers and particularly caregivers in hospitals. I mean, I think I made the point a couple of times that people often die in a hospital and those nurses who attend to people who are dying, some of them are very respectful and really try to make that ending as peaceful as possible. So, you know, um, cheers to mm. all of the caregivers because yeah, there, it's a hard job. It is. There, um, there was a film that I thought brought that out pretty well. Uh, I think it was called Wit. Um, where really the person was kind of abandoned except for their nurse. And um, that becomes a very profound relationship when people do end up dying in the hospital, doesn't it? Yeah. That's who you're around most of the time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure. And, and, and at home. I mean, the, the caregiver, the person who who is giving care is the closest often to the patient, whether they are a spouse, a family member, a loved one, or just someone that's trusted. Um, so, you know, caregivers all over. And this, the, the data, the statistics are saying that because people are living so long, that the ratio of caregiver to patient is declining. So that there are less people today in the early, in the early, like 2010, there are like two people, two caregivers to every four patients. So in, in time, and I think that that might give rise to this whole long-term care concept because if we're lucky, everybody's going to be pretty old and we won't have so many people available to give care 
um, on that kind of daily basis that family members often do. Maybe particularly for boomers because there's so many of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's time for our, our next break. So listeners, uh, please do go check out my host page and follow the links to everything good grief and everything weathering grief. And uh, to find Marilyn Ababio, email M-A-R-I-L-Y-N dot A-B-A-B-I-O at acgov.org. Be back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. Today I'm with Marilyn Ababio, whose mission is to make end-of-life planning and support widely available. And as she said in an early, earlier segment, uh, she'd like it to be universal that people uh, um, know have thought about how they want the end of their lives to go. And that's interesting to me, Marilyn, because you're doing something locally, but it sounds to me like your your vision is pretty global. Yes, that- yes. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, comfort homesake. Um, my children and I, after the death of their brother and my son, um, we started a nonprofit organization called Comfort Homesake, and that's comfort at home for the sake of God. This was the motivation for us to start a 501c3 nonprofit, and the mission of that nonprofit, Comfort Homesake, is to increase national awareness around advanced care planning and hospice through education, advocacy, and consultation. And it was from this platform that we were contracted by Alameda County to, to study 
the referral practices in the county for people who had a serious illness. So this is kind of how I got to the position in Alameda County. Um, Comfort Homesake is um, still trying its best to increase national awareness until every family in the country is prepared. And, of course, with social media, um, we are expanding globally, and our one of the strongest uh, points about Comfort Homesake's training is that it includes um, cultural and linguistic sensitivity. Uh, we, we have a multi-generational, multi-faith, multi-ethnic uh, board of directors that ensures that our training um, is culturally and linguistically competent. I think that's so, so vital because, of course, people come with a lot of different traditions, assumptions, uh, thoughts, and feelings about this whole dying thing, right? Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so and, um, having having a way to take that into account just seems so, so vital to me. Absolutely. Um, and if you, if you look at the aging in America, you know that between uh, 6,000 and even estimates up to 10,000 people every day are turning 65 years old, and 50-some percent of those people are people from other ethnicities. So we are seeing that ethnic groups are becoming a large part of the fabric of America and really can't be ignored. I think here in California, aren't, aren't non-white citizens uh, very close to outnumbering uh, white citizens, for instance? Yes. Uh, kind of reversing what used to be true. Right. And, um, it, it just seems... Uh, I, I don't... I... I uh, know some differences in how people look at this just from my own work, but that's a very small sample. How did you train yourselves in cultures that are not your own culture? Well, it it began several years ago in my bio. You mentioned I had some 25 years experience in environmental justice, and that work started in multi-ethnic communities. The environmental justice movement began in Washington, D.C. with a white paper that came from ethnic groups throughout the country um, focused on transportation equity. So um, I began um, many years ago in, with the Native American, the Latino community um, in particular, and then um, established relationships through my work with um, the federal agency, a federal agency, FTA, um, working in all of the um, federal regions in the country in the major urban areas, um, promoting concepts of environmental justice among ethnic uh, communities. And so I ended up publishing a guide um, for um, agencies that wanted to do outreach to ethnic communities, and so I've done a lot of interviewing, but it's really better if you live it, 
And mm-hmm. so um, I've traveled widely to um, China and Africa, to the Caribbean, to many parts of the world um, to try to understand people from where they came. Uh, many people who are immigrants here bring with them the culture that they uh, were born to. And in order to understand them, you know, we need to understand where they came from. And because, like, like, I'll say like all of us, most people, when we're faced with a terminal illness, you know, we, we return to our roots. We return to our emotional center and our practices and beliefs come from there. So um, that it's true for everyone. Um, Stanford University has a wonderful ethno-geriatric fellowship that uh, your public might be interested in, and um, it's free, it's online, um, I, you do have to apply. It's a mini-fellowship from the School of Medicine, um, www.stanford.edu backslash ethnogeriatric should bring you there. And what it does is it, it, it provides for people who are interested or practitioners and medical providers who want a quick look at culture from the point of, from a historical point of view as well as a point of view of how they see uh, end-of-life care. And it is focused on people who have a serious illness, some of the questions in the research and you get an idea from from that website. I think they have researched ten or twelve ethnic groups. Um, just what the ethnic disposition might be like of a particular patient. But of course, above all, the best way to find out is to ask. Yeah, I remember when when uh, I was being trained in diversity during graduate school. Um, and uh, it, uh, realizing simple things like in certain cultural cultures making eye contact is frowned on. And, of course, if you don't know that, you might make some assumptions about that that are incorrect. Mm-hmm. So it's being educated in that way and then also uh, actually listening intently to how the person is seeing their life, isn't it? Yes, listening is the greatest skill of all. <laughs> but I also, Go ahead. I, I also hear in that, you know, we were talking earlier about the sense of life's purpose, or we could say calling, and I hear that everything you did previous to this work, even what was not directly related to end of life, uh, contributes to the way that you work with this issue, that sort of all you've done helps you do this. You know, Cheryl, that is so insightful. Thank you for saying that. I, I'm, I'm realizing that as you're speaking, um, that that is very true, and it really contributes to this sense that I was trying to describe earlier, the sense of place for me. Um, I've always been interested in people from all over the world, and to be able to give back in this way, uh, to give of my experience and my training, the expertise, um, is a gift 
that 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 I appreciate very much. Um, as much as it is hard to live without my child, I feel like I give back every day. One of the people I met through the show is writing about a book about uh, the connection between grief and generosity. Um, that that when you've grieved a loss deeply, and you and you find a way to integrate integrate that loss, there's sort of a natural impulse to give something, isn't there? It is, and there is, and and you know it's 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 a fearless thing. Meaning, I don't believe I could be stopped. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm really happy to be getting paid for the work, but <laughs> I don't think I could be stopped. I love that sentence. I don't think I could be stopped. That's that's a wonderful a, a wonderful expression of the kind of passion that I find people have when when something so difficult has led to that kind of impetus to use it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I don't, I don't know people as driven as those of us that have that, you know, not driven as in working a million hours necessarily, but driven as is, as, as in, this is something I must do. Yes. And, yes? and, and let's, let's just be really honest. I mean, it takes something from you as well. Mm-hmm. In my case, I, I, it took music from me. I could be really honest here. I just, I love music. I still like to listen to music, but it doesn't move me in the way that it used to. Just something happened. Maybe mm-hmm. it was a, is a sense of joy that left. But rather than to embrace that, you know, I, I chose to embrace something that would bring a positive benefit to me and hopefully to the rest of the world. I, I'm glad you are willing to share uh, that, at least for me, and I hear it in what you're saying, the, um, the, the painful aspects of loss aren't eliminated by the beautiful aspects of transformation. Well they, said, yes. They, they kind of live side by side, don't they? They do. They do. It's, it's your choice. It's what you choose to embrace. And also what uh, I think it, it takes a big turn of mind and heart for us to accept feeling more than one way at a time. Mm. I, I don't think that's particularly encouraged uh, where we live in this Western world, to um, participate in the complexity of feelings we have about living, uh, that changed in me quite a bit through loss. Uh, my capacity to feel complicated things mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time. And I hear that in what you're saying, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I just wanted to make sure that I invite the public, the listening public, if you don't mind, to participate with my Alameda County program, participate with the East Bay Conversation Project and the City of Oakland on 
April 16, which is National Healthcare Decision Day, to come out to City Hall Plaza in Oakland and attend our Conversation Village. It's going to be a beautiful site. We'll have tents. We'll have giveaways. We'll have the ability for people to tell stories, to have their stories recorded, to complete advanced directive forms in the privacy of a small tent-like situation. We'll have a notary. We'll have people who can translate into different languages. Um, the Ragged Wing Ensemble will be there. We'll hopefully get the East Bay Meditation Center out to teach us how to meditate. Fantastic. It's going to be a grand day. Well, I'll be there, and and uh, I'll put it on my social media, too, so people can, can uh, you know, access me to know about it. You just let me know everything, and I, I can direct them. Thanks so much for being with me today, Marilyn. And thank you very much again for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I hope listeners will go find Marilyn, Marilyn Marilyn.ababio at acgov.org. And I want to let you know that next week I'm going to be with Anna Elizabeth, the author of Digging for the Light, One Woman's Journey from Heartache to Hope. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.